Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number 110. I'm your host, Derek Moore. This week, talking about a couple things. Recently wrote an article uh, that I will certainly link to around just some of the things at the end of Q1 here of 2021. And one of the the interesting things I read this week uh, in Barron's, and I'll try and link to the uh, uh, to that piece as well. But um, actually, no, I can just link to the piece I wrote, which links to those links, if that makes any sense. But bonds in Q1 of 2021, that's this year, if you're listening to it now, if you're listening to it a year from now, well, it's not right now. Anyway, U.S. Treasuries had the third worst start to the year since 1830. And... I actually was surprised when I read that because I don't remember that there were treasuries back then, but more on that later. And no surprise, um, it's actually the worst start to the year since 1980. And anybody knows anything about history and inflation, rates were rising at the end of the 1970s into the early 1980s. And when rates go up, generally bonds go down. And so if you look at the Q1 performance for, and I just pulled a couple ETFs, uh, IEF, TLT, ZROZ, and these are just good proxies for, because they, they represent different parts of the duration market. And so, for example, the ZROZ is a 25-plus year maturity uh, and zero coupon. So zero coupons means they don't pay interest out. A zero coupon bond, just you buy it at new issue at a discount and eventually it goes to par value a thousand. And you don't get payments, but you get, you know, an annualized interest rate based upon what you buy it at and then what what it hopefully matures at, assuming it doesn't go belly up and you know, stop uh, go out of business or something like that. But generally these are, you know, there's some zero coupon. Uh, bonds that are out there. That one was down close to 20% in the first quarter. The TLT, which is a a 20-plus year uh, maturity ETF, mainly U.S. Treasuries, I think all the U.S. Treasuries, that was down something like, you know, 13%, almost 15%. I think it hit down 15% at one point before bouncing up. And even the IEF, which is a, uh, a, you know, an exchange-traded fund, that represents seven to 10 years of maturity. Uh, that one was down oh, roughly, I don't know, 6% or so. And so that may not seem like a lot, but it actually is a lot when you think about historically what that grouping of maturities has done in the US Treasury space. And so naturally, right, I mean, five year yield went from probably. I mean, in February, it was like half a point, and now it's just under 1%. The 10-year was under 1%, and now is you know, 1, 1.70 or so. It's come up a full percentage point. And same thing with the, the other end of the curve. Those are all, you know, re, they've all increased in rates, in, you know, interest rates, and so those bonds have come down. But I thought that was interesting. And... By the way, for that, those of you who are like, wait a second, really there were U.S. Treasuries in 1830? I didn't think the whole 
national deficit thing and taxes and everything started uh, until the early 1900s. And, and you're not wrong there. Uh, but I did look back and apparently in 1812, the U.S. started to issue some bonds to help pay for the, the War of 1812. And so they had a, a rough year, I guess, in uh, 1830. And by the way, uh, if you're wondering, the rate back then was 5.4% annual. So if you would have bought one of those bonds, assuming it didn't get defaulted on, you would have gotten about 5.4% compared to, and, and oh, I should mention, that was a one-year bond. So right now, the one-year bond is something like 0.12%. It's nothing. So back then uh, in 1812, you could have gotten 5.4%. The other thing that we noticed this week, and uh, Zega Financial CEO Jay Pestricelli had messaged me on this, uh, and he made a mention that, hey, look, you know, the market's at all-time highs. But what's interesting is that a lot of the big names, the glamour names, so Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and I, I threw Netflix in here as well, though certainly they don't have the same market cap weighting as the other ones. Uh, but, you know, Apple and Amazon and Netflix, they are in correction territory, greater than 10% down still. Even as the market's making a new high, Apple's down 15.5% off its its all-time high, which I think, when was that? Last year at some point. Uh, same thing with Amazon, down about 14% from its all-time high. Microsoft down a little less than 4%. Netflix down a little over 11%. So how is the market at all-time highs if... These stocks that have been sort of leading, you know, the recovery and, and leading the uh, the market for a long time are in correction territory. And the answer is uh, the value factor or the value stocks have sort of caught some uh, some wind at their sales, and you're seeing some rotation. So different leadership in the markets is is helping to move the markets higher. But I thought that was uh, smart of Jay and and. Uh, you know, to kind of bring that up uh, because, you know, if you own Apple or, or Amazon, you'd be like, wait a second, we're not making new highs. And it's another good reason to simply buy, you know, an index and not try and be picking the, the individual stocks. Uh, even better, get a strategy that has natural hedges on a broad-based index. So, and we've done a couple episodes, a lot of episodes on our, our strategy there, so I can, I can try and link to those. But that was interesting to me, um, and I hadn't, you know, I sort of knew it, uh, that rotation was going on, but I didn't quite see it was that, that dramatic, and I thought that was. And finally, the other thing, and we'll, we'll kind of get into the, the topic, which is, is the market overvalued? And how would you, if you wanted to be an armchair evaluation expert, how would, what would you sort of look at? But the last thing that I noticed is uh, I actually looked on Google Trends. And Google Trends, if you Google Google Trends, you can type in a, a search term and you can see over a period of time, you know, how popular that search term was. And Certainly inflation a couple weeks ago peaked uh, its highest point in the last five years. Um, stock market bubble also that peaked uh, back in January, uh, but certainly a lot of people searching for that. I guess that could be a contrarian indicator too, maybe. 
we have gone on to new highs since since that peak. But there was some news out on Goldman Sachs revising their GDP growth forecast. And of course, you know, GDP is your gross domestic product. It's uh, one of the main ways that you measure, you know, the health of the economy. Is the economy growing? And when you see these numbers, they're, they're, the quarterly numbers are always annualized. That's why we got that negative 30% GDP uh, was a quarter two of 2020. Of course, you know, you divide by four to get uh, the quarter number. But they said 8% growth uh, in 2020. And I believe they said, I have the numbers here, 3.5% growth in 22 and 3.2% growth in 2023, according to Goldman Sachs, that's the GDP growth estimates. And I got to tell you, I mean, I, I had CNBC on and, you know, everyone was talking about, oh, wow, this is, we've never seen growth like this in, in most, you know, modern times, uh, you know, going back three decades or more, uh, maybe even more than that. So they were talking about it and they're saying, this is crazy. We get this type of growth. We're almost certainly going to get, you know, inflation. We haven't seen this type of growth. So it got me thinking. And, you know, the thing with those projections is, and, you know, we, we've got, we had a pullback in GDP. We had negative GDP, although not quite as much as people thought in 2020. But, you know, the question is, is a lot of this recovery reopening as we go from, you know, different parts of the country getting rid of easing or getting rid of their lockdowns, although some parts of the country kind of seem to be in perpetual lockdown. So what I did was I took the Goldman Sachs projections and then I said, okay, what if we just would have grown at two and a half percent and had no pandemic? And so what would that look like? Well, we ended the year a little bit over 19 trillion. It was called real GDP. Real GDP is your growth after inflation. So in other words, if you grew 10%, but your inflation was 10%, you really had no growth. It wasn't real growth because the real growth would be zero. All that would do would be a boost in the, in the um, prices of all finished goods in the economy and by 10%, but that was due to inflation. So I said, okay, 19 trillion uh, was our end of the year 2019. And I said, well, what if we just grew two and a half percent? We never had the decline like we actually did. And so in actuality, what happened is we went from 19 trillion 092, and then obviously a bunch of zeros after that, but we'll call it 19.09 trillion to about 18.4 trillion. But if we just would have grown and it would have went, you know, a little over 19 trillion, 19 point, you know, 6, 20.1, 20.6, and then 21.1. So we would have wound up in 23, assuming no pandemic, 2.5% growth rate, about 21 trillion, a little north of there. And then I plugged in the Goldman Sachs numbers. So I, did, I used the actual 18.4 trillion that we ended the, the 2020 year, real GDP. And I said, let's do the 8% jump. 
in 21, the three and a half and the 3.3 percent. I think I'm remembering my, my numbers right. And we wind up being about 21 point, you know, three trillion uh, as opposed to 21.1 trillion. So the point of doing that is, you know, having this jump, even if we use the Goldman numbers, um, you're only going to be slightly above where in theory you might have wound up with the 2.5% growth rate in GDP. Now, are we sure that uh, it's going to be 8%, 3.5%, 3.2%? Who knows? You know, 2023 is a long time away. Imagine 2018, somebody had a 2020 number. That didn't work, right? So, but I bring this up because a lot of people are pointing to that and they're saying, this is really, really inflationary. But hold on a second. Uh, maybe we're just catching, you know, that recovery trade, uh, recovery in the economy is boosting things much higher uh, from a growth rate. And I think you saw that, you know, Q3 of 2020 on an annualized basis, it was like plus 20 something percent GDP growth. So, but we had a, you know, minus 30% GDP growth the quarter before. I should have gotten the exact numbers. I'm doing it from memory. So when you look them up, they'll probably be a little different than that. Uh, but that, that's the point of, of looking at that. And then the other thing to kind of piggyback on the whole Google trends, you know, people have been searching inflation. They've certainly been searching Bitcoin. They've been searching, uh, what else? Stock market bubble. Uh, stock market crash, by the way, that was not as high as it's been in the end of 18. The end of 18, remember we had the, uh, uh, the almost, you know, bear market. We were like 19.9% down. You got to be 20 for an official bear market. But, you know, um, it got me thinking. A lot of people keep saying valuations, you know, we're at, we're at the highest percentiles and things like that. And so, remember, what are they talking about? What they're doing is they're saying, we're, we're looking at, let's say, the next four quarters. So, the next four quarters would include the quarter that just ended, Q1, because we don't have those earnings yet. And they're saying, okay, well, if, if our stock market, S&P, is at 4000 and we divide by, you know, let's say we get $185 um, in earnings on the S&P this year, that means your forward PE is 21.6. And then they'll, they'll point out, I think the 25-year average is more around like 16 or something like that. So certainly valuations are stretched. Um, but I, I don't know what the market's going to do. Again, buy and hedge, right? Get in, you know, be invested into the market, but have downside protections. And so there's a couple of things here. Um, one is that, you know, if you if you look at the forward valuations and you look at the PEs, um, no doubt they're high. Uh, but on the other hand, do we really know what earnings are going to be in in 2021, uh, especially given? that 8% Goldman estimate for GDP growth this year. Wouldn't that imply a little bit higher earnings rate? Maybe, who knows? Credit Suisse, uh, another firm that's well-known out there, uh, they just raised their 21 targets to, I think they're I think they're more like, well, maybe they, maybe they are the 185. Maybe somebody else is 180. 
Um, so, you know, there's a couple of things that ha could happen. Earnings uh, have been trending where they've been beating expectations. We've also seen that firms have been raising expectations for future earnings. And so there is a, a case for, as the earnings fill in, that forward PE valuation will come down. Um, you know, we'll have to see. But the other thing that, so I mentioned if you wanted to be an armchair valuation person, um, one of the ways that people value markets, and here's the thing on this, right? When you're doing valuation, something like a discounted cash flow analysis, essentially what you're doing is you're taking estimates of the future. They're predict predictions, and we know the predictions always don't come true. But using estimates, not certainty, but estimates. And basically, what you would do is you would look at free cash flow for all the companies, let's say in the S&P 500, and you would value those cash flows. So that's sort of involved. And I mean, do you even know where to look for all the cash flow? You can find it, the cash flow on the, on the S&P 500 companies. But um, there's another way to do it. Uh, somebody like Dr. Uh, or Professor, he's a doctor, but he goes, you know, he doesn't call himself doctor. Uh, Professor Oswath Demodoran, uh, he puts out pieces uh, on his Twitter feed every once in a while where he looks at the, you know, basically the expected cash flow growth, but he, he looks at it as expected earnings. And so let's take that, you know, 180 or 185 expected earnings number. And so if you had 180 and that's not cash flow, so it's not really the, the pure and true way to do it. Um, but as he points out, you could take that expected earnings and then you could say what percentage of those earnings are going to be paid out in dividends or used to buy back shares. Remember, share buybacks are just another way of returning capital to shareholders. So you can pay a dividend to shareholders, or you can use some of the, the cash flow or net income or earnings to buy back your own shares. And it's a quasi-dividend. And if you if you take sort of the the dividend yield and the buyback yield, you could get your total um, quasi-dividend, I'll call it, um, because one you know returns a check. Um, and of course, on a taxable account, you got to pay taxes on it. The other buys back shares, so if there's less shares, the remaining shares, in theory, are worth more because the earnings per share goes up because there's less shares and things like that. So if we look and we say, okay, you know, maybe we'll use, um, you know, one eighty, hundred eighty dollars uh, in earnings for the S and P five hundred in twenty one. Not my estimate. I think that's a couple of the street estimates. And let's use, let's say you know two hundred dollars for twenty two. Um, if you wanted to, you could extrapolate out and say, okay, if you got a ten percent growth rate from twenty two to twenty three, that would mean uh, you know let's say earnings are two thirty. When we make it five percent, let's make it you know two twenty or something like that. And then you might assume you know ninety percent of that income is either dividends or buybacks. And what you could do is, uh, I mean, it's going to be really dry if I, if I do all the numbers for you here. 
Uh, but you can Google how to do a, a discount of cash flow or, or just find uh, Professor Aswath Motor and stuff. Uh, his stuff is great on online. Uh, but if you do that, and then the last step of that, you got to decide like after one, two, three years of earnings, what's the growth rate going to be in perpetuity? And how would you know that? Well, you could make it equal to, you know, historical growth in GDP, maybe somewhere between two and 3%. Uh, another way that people do it is they take uh, the 10-year treasury yield or the 30-year yield. Uh, the 10-year treasury is 1.7%. So you could say, well, our earnings are going to grow at, you know, 1.7% a year perpetually. You can make it up. Or you could, you know, do some analysis or use some some street estimate for what long-term growth is going to be. But the reason why I point that up, on the back of the napkin calculation, if you do that, you know, the market comes out based upon that, um, that scenario to somewhere around, you know, 3,900, 4,000. Now, first of all, do, do not take that as, uh, I literally did that in, in like three minutes on a, on a piece of scratch pad. But, the point is that when we look at valuations, in theory, a stock is worth discounted to the present, what's the expected future cash flows or future earnings are going to bring in. And then you figure out, like, in perpetuity, a stock's going to grow at a certain amount. Do you know what, you know, IBM or Apple, do you really know what their earnings are going to be in, in three, four, five, six, ten years? You know, good luck with that. But I bring this up because um, some of the the valuation stuff I've seen is really all over the map. We mentioned the the Hussman piece where he talks about the forward twelve uh, year returns being the average annual return being negative. Um, and i'll I'll link to we did a, a podcast. was it last week? Yeah, last week, where we actually used uh, and his stuff is I, I like reading his stuff. Um, really detailed, really well, well detailed, well positioned. Um, but you know, he he is one of the uh, the people on the street who says he thinks valuations are you know really too high, and, and you're likely to have negative annualized returns uh, of a couple percent over the next twelve years. And then you've got other people. I think I've seen year end targets for the S and P forty five hundred. I've seen other ones even higher than that. So, you know, I, I bring this up because when you're using estimates, um, you know, and, and who knows what really is going to happen. I know it's surprising to hear someone who's professional in the markets talk like that, um, but there's so many unknowns and, you know, basically what everyone's trying to do is they're using the best information that they have and they're making projections and some really smart people are doing this stuff. But in the end, um, so I, I think there's a couple central things to, to kind of think about for this week. Number one is, you know, there's a lot of fear on inflation. And I think you're going to see some numbers come out for, for March, April, maybe, you know, after that. And when you look at year over year, remember last year in the midst of the lockdowns and the pandemic, Really, the lockdowns. I mean, the lockdowns are really what caused the uh, the economy, and that's another 
you know, show altogether that would debate whether they were good or not. Um, but for now, I mean, obviously, if you shut down the economy, you're going to have negative GDP growth. So, you know, you're going to have some comparables um, from one year to the next where inflation is going to look like it's pretty high. Is there inflation in certain areas? Of course there is. And there's a, I've done episodes on whether CPI is the right, you know, how that's measured is the right way to do it. Um, but certainly if you look at Google Trends, that's an interesting and place to look because uh, a lot of people were Googling inflation that was trending, that, uh, that search term. And so it's something that, that people are feel f- fearful of. Um, but I think, uh, you know, typically, and we've done episodes on this, we talked about the, the money velocity. Um, sure, there's been a heck of a lot of growth in uh, the money supply, but we have not seen money velocity raise yet. And typically, there's a pretty good correlation between the level of money velocity and inflation, at least in the data, I think, going back to the 60s. So there's there's bull and bear cases on on inflation. Um, that's going to sort of play out. The other thing is, whenever you have a year like 2020, and you've got 2020's numbers in there, it always kind of is, it messes around with, with some of the, you know, historical PEs and um, the CAPE ratio and all, all those sorts of things. In a good example of that is, you know, in 2008, 2009, in 2009, I think the P.E. ratio was something like 70. I don't remember what the forward P.E. ratio was. And we all know, you know, if, if you stayed out of the market from, you know, March of 2009 for the next couple of years, you missed quite a bit of the recovery. So really, in the end, it all comes back to, you know, advocating for a strategy in your investments that has downside protection. What that's going to do is a couple of things. It's going to take away you needing to be absolutely correct with your entry points, trying to time the market. The other is, uh, should give you some peace of mind where if the market does materially adversely correct or have a, you know, at one point, I mean, 2008, 2009, the market was down over 50%. If you've got a floor in your portfolio, uh, in, a, in a hedged equity strategy, um, that's gonna that's gonna make you sleep a little better at night, certainly, and take some of the the timing and pressure away from you. And then finally, the other thing when Jay and I talked about it last week is that if you do have hedges in place and you avoid the loss, you in theory get to buy back at much cheaper levels. And so that's why I'm a big fan of are hedged equity strategies. I use them with, uh, with a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, as far as the valuation thing, um, you know, go ahead, Google, uh, uh, how to do, uh, Google Aswath, you know, what? just go to him. He's, he's probably one of the best out there communicating this stuff. So, uh, Aswath Demodoran, I will link to his page um, and also I'll link to one of his Twitter posts and you can kind of take a look at some of the stuff he does. And that way, when you get earnings estimates, you can follow, uh, follow along and do a little discounted cash flow. Uh, but instead on cash flow, you do it on earnings and you assume dividends and buybacks are going to come from those. So 
All right. Uh, and with that, yes, look up the 1812 uh, issuance of U.S. Treasuries. One-year Treasury bill, 5.4%. All right, folks, we'll leave it there. As always, uh, you know, don't waste time rating and sharing. And Actually, no, share it. Don't, don't waste time rating and doing all those things. Um, and also, you know, go ahead and uh, contact me if you want to suggest a topic for an episode. Love to hear from, uh, from listeners. And as I say always, the, a lot of these topics come about because of listener suggestions. With that, uh, we'll end it and we'll talk to you all next week.